Welcome to Coyote Conversations, a Crescent alumni podcast produced by students for the Crescent community. Each episode will feature a conversation with a member of our talented and diverse community. We'll find out what they're up to, the journey that got them there, and the lessons in character they picked up from their days at Crescent. My name is Hassam Gadaki, class of 1999, and I'm joined today with Will Christodoulou, class of 2013. Welcome, Will. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Great. Well, Will, it's it's a pleasure and an honor to have you here. Uh, you're a very exciting alumni. Let's start the interview with just some quick facts about Will Christodoulou and his tenure here at Crescent School. When did you start? When did you end? House, sports, all of that kind Jeez. of detail. Yeah, it's a, a bit of a flashback kind of thing, right? So I uh, started grade four, graduated 2013. In the time, uh, did as many sports as I can think of, track, soccer, hockey guy. Um, spent some time doing a little bit of the robotics. Shout out to the robotics team. Always proud of those guys. Um, also did a little bit of prefect time. Was McKenzie House prefect as well. Um, and... Just always good to come back and reflect and spend time with students when I can. So it's awesome. Again, it's awesome to be back. Like, it's really grateful to be here. That's great. A fellow McKenzie uh, house captain prefect myself. I didn't know that. Um, So, Will, let's start. I looked over your your CV and your education. And one thing jumped out at me, which I wanted to ask you about, which was being valedictorian at Western. So um, that's that's quite an accomplishment. Um, that's a very competitive program there at Western. That's the business school? Yeah. 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 And so I know it's really difficult to even get into the business school. Being valedictorian must have meant a lot of really hard work. Mm-hmm. Is was, was academic success something that just came naturally to you as a student? No. Well, that's the thing. Is so it's actually there's two things sides to that. Well, one, uh, no, academic success did not naturally come to me. And interestingly enough, too, is that uh, I initially didn't get into the uh, HBA program at Ivy. I actually ended up um, flunking a couple grades in my first year of engineering school and ended up having to re-go back to get into my master's program. And the interesting thing about that is that through failure, I ended up being able to get into my master's program and ended up in that position of valedictorian as well. And all, the whole story actually of being, ex- okay, accepting failure and dialing back to kind of fighting your way to make sure that you get to success comes back to when I was at this school um, at Crescent. So to give the story, if I may, yes, absolutely, yeah. kind of like where that kind of success to not come naturally kind of thing is I remember it was grade 11 I was sitting in uh, Mr. Stevens math class for functions or whatever and one of the first things he does which is awesome and I think he still does it today is he asks all the students a natural questionnaire where it's like uh, do you believe that mathematics and intelligence is inherited you think that's something that just comes to you naturally um, and me I was fine what a 15 years old or whatever I circled that yeah like you're naturally smart because I saw all these other guys that got awesome grades I never had great grades when through through the beginning couple of years um, and he, he got, stopped me before I left the class and he kind of said to me he's like you were one of the only guys few guys that said that like it's natural like it's you have to work at it. and I didn't believe him I was like no there's no way like I've worked hard at stuff and, and like whatever. I never really put the crazy amount of effort or things, time that I ended up learning through him into it. So uh, in that moment, he kind of saw me and he said, no, like you're going to put your time, put your effort into this specific work, like in the not grade 11 functions. And it was through his help of scheduling and 
maintaining my, my, my different academics, where I was weakest at, where I was strongest at, spending time and prioritizing, that I learned the system of how to tackle the things you're weaker at and spend more time on them and perhaps not spend the most times that come naturally. So like naturally, I was kind of like a better athlete. So I'd spend time on practice, obviously, and put a lot of time into that. But I would always go, oh, I'm going to go for a run rather than spend that extra time learning, uh, what was it, the asymptote or whatever of grade 12 functions. And it was interesting because prior to that, again, not a math guy, not much of, much of a STEM guy, but it was through the constant iteration of working hard at that specific topic that I then started to fall in love with the other STEM fields and the other things because I started to find that talent and skill by putting time into chemistry and physics and all those other things as well. Um, and so th with that, I ended up loving math, loving science, loving all these things, getting into engineering, but then not fully appreciating the extra next step that you had to take. So going back to that beginning aspect of where I flunked a couple courses, I ended up, the, the workload for any student or a lot of my alumni colleagues that ever did Eng probably know, um, Eng is hard. Like first year Eng, they put you through a gauntlet, right? So uh, I worked really hard and uh, got a bunch of courses done, passed as many as I can except for one one course I failed. And so the way that it works with Ivy is if you fail a course, you can't actually get in easily to the HBA program. You lose your AEO status, all these horrible things happen. But through the tenacity and the learnings that I kind of had in that aspect of, okay, if this is something I'm weakest at, I can just work on it again, catch up and find, find a way in again. So I always had that goal to get in that Ivy program. So went back, I took, I took a job during the summer, uh, stayed in London, took a course, redid it, passed that course. Just again, I sucked at it, but focused, prioritized it, learned, ended up, again, it was coding, which is applicable to what I do now at Cider. I failed coding in my first year of engineering, and now I'm a freaking the CTO of a company. Um, <laughs> and then from that, loved coding, leveraged that to get into computer engineering specifically, because in second, third, and fourth year, you specialize. Did that, went into my professional career, got into the Masters of Analytics program at Ivy, and then I just loved it, and that's how I got into that valedictorian position, just iterating, constantly being used to failure, not letting it kill you and keep going after it. So that's kind of the valedictorian way, and then through that, good grades, um, knowing how to talk, I guess, but that also came through practice. Shout out to Miss Latimer Kim. Um, she's awesome too. Uh, congrats on her award as well. I saw that in the paper. She got an award recently. Um, but yeah, that's kind of how we got to the valedictorian world. Yeah, so it's, it seems like, you know, perhaps the, your first few years at Crescent were a little bit of a, a learning curve or a rocky road. And this moment in uh, Stevens's math class yeah. um, was something that kind of changed the way you saw uh, academic challenge and, mm -hmm. and, and STEM particularly. Mm -hmm. um, I think... I think a lot of us joining the school, uh, for me, absolutely, uh, is a bit of a transition. I, uh, myself, was not in, well, wasn't accepted into Crescent for grade four or grade five, uh, but applied again in grade six. Uh, and it really wasn't until I had the support of a couple teachers, Doug Smith, Paul Craig, and uh, David Grant, yeah, yeah. that they that they, that I really felt like I became part of the school when they, I think they engineered for me a, a position on the basketball team as a water boy. <laughs> um, and, and so once that sort of clicked, then everything seemed to fall into place, like academically, athletically. Um, but I think the lesson 
the lesson for a lot of kids is, uh, sorry, students is that, um, that the first few years can be a transition, can yeah. be, can be challenging. Mm-hmm. But once you really find your groove here or wherever, even later in life yeah. that then you're rolling and yeah. thing, a lot of good things can come of it. Um, so I think everyone on everyone's mind is, is the cider story. Yeah. So perhaps you can let us know exactly how, um, this, really exciting enterprise came to be, um, where the idea came from. Mm-hmm. I know that, uh, you have uh, co-founders as well, yeah. how it all came together. Yeah. Awesome, man. Yeah. So as I said, kind of had the technical inch thing that I kind of battled through after going to school at Crescent. Uh, and the world kind of came to me when I was working in my first job, I was a fraud analyst at a bank, uh, and basically to give everyone an aspect of what CIDR is, CIDR is the world's first data trust that allows individuals to monetize their online data because everyone was sick and tired of big companies taking their data, being creepy. Uh, so we ended up building this product that actually helps you control and monetize your own data. And so what I saw at this first gig was I saw how much data these big companies and banks were collecting on people. And it was super weird. It was like you could see this stuff that you're like, there's no way people are OK with individuals knowing that. And I kept seeing that through my career. I worked as a data engineer for large healthcare companies. I worked as a a pro bono consultant for a bit. I was employee number one at a tech company as well. And I kind of kept seeing this. And eventually I kind of, and that's where the tech companies were got the flavor of startup world. And that's where I was like, okay, I'm going to build a product with one of my best friends that I'll talk about in a sec where individuals can protect themselves online, block all these creepy trackers that are following on the web and then decide who gets to see it and then monetize that as well. The way that that came to be was actually through COVID, where me and my best friend who I met in my Masters of Data Analytics program, it was one of these amazing moments where you don't realize a stranger from across the room can eventually lead to such an amazing journey, um, which we can maybe dial into a bit too. And him and I would pitch each other through COVID uh, every Friday, a random business idea. And I had the idea of cider in the back of my head through those working times. And he pitched me a peanut butter company. I pitched him some music iteration something and whatever. And this normal things that people do to keep sane during COVID. I'm sure we all had weird hobbies we picked up. Um, and one was cider. And I pitched him the idea. And he was like, that has legs. And it was cool because it went from a random pitch every Friday to a 15-minute meeting every Monday to a, meet, a meeting every hour every day to getting incorporating, paying like 200 bucks for a license, getting a website to, I think I told you this is like an insane thing we did where we while we were working, um, I took vacation, so don't worry, um, booked a flight to San Francisco six months after we incorporated. And I said to Sukman, that's his name, Sukman Dulé, we are going to have something to show people when we go to San Francisco in six months. Um, so we go, we're on the plane to San Francisco. And I remember this, like, it was unbelievable while we're boarding gate 96 on in Pearson. Um, we get an, an email from an investment group down in Berkeley, California saying, congratulations, you've just been accepted for $200,000 for your startup. And you're sitting there and you're like, holy hell, like this is wow. something. Um, and again, it was just one of those things where there's so many moments that you can kind of dissect of where it wouldn't have happened. Like me and Sukman were best friends. We did student government together. We did all these same things. And then we just kind of shot our shot. We did what we did to chip away at it. And then that was like the little spark that we're like, okay, let's do something. Let's get this thing off the ground. And it's been great since. Yeah. Wow. Um, that must've been quite a flight. (laughs) It was a hell of a flight. I don't think I slept. Yeah. Now I can't sleep on flights, but so, um, 
Tell me about the steps leading up to your appearance on the hit show Dragon's Den. I know yeah. a, a, a lot of people have seen it. I myself have seen it. Uh, there was one moment there, because I'm a lawyer, um, <laughs> watching you get uh, threatened to be sued. Yeah. Um, that must have been... That must have raised the heart rate a little bit. Yeah. Tell us about the Dragon's Den experience. How, how, how did it start and, yeah. and what were some of your favorite moments? Yeah, so one of the things we learned through this whole thing, if the Berkeley story doesn't give you a thing, is you take every shot you can. Um, so it was very much a, we're kind of sitting there, we're working on different things. The product is B2B, but also consumer-facing, so we need some people just to get some, some traction. Um, and so I was just kind of sitting there and a friend of mine shot me over the Dragon's Den thing saying, hey, take your shot. Like, why not? It was like the last day. And I was like, screw it. Like, why not? Like, so we wrote a little application and you go through several rounds of interviews to kind of get in. And again, we just shot the shot. We took it our chance. Usually they take B2C kind of products. So like soaps and whatever, your mom and pa shops is usually physical products. So we didn't think a software company would go through. Lo and behold, it did, um, which was awesome. Uh, but the funny thing was, is like we didn't really know what we were getting ourselves into with regards to the day itself. They don't give you really any knowledge of what you're doing. Uh, so they kind of prep you. They give you like, okay, then you got 90 seconds to pitch, and then it's an hour of live pitch. Like they are going to be, and you're going to be recorded the entire time. Uh, good luck. That's all they give you. And the thing that's so funny is you arrive at CBC, and they tell you to arrive at like six in the morning. Um, and they tell you to do a prop check, right? And we're sitting there, we're like, okay, we're here at six in the morning and there's a person with like a paint company and another person with a sunglasses company and then they get to a cider and they're like, okay guys, like, so what's your prop? And we're sitting there and it's just me and my partner Suckman, we're like, we are the prop, what do, you, what do you want? And they go, okay, good, check mark. And then we sat there for four hours. We just sat there in this like dim, like heavily lit warehouse that they have you sitting in. Uh, they're really nice. The staff are super lovely, but you're kind of exhausted, stressed as all hell uh, sitting in this booth. And then they don't tell you when you're up. So you're sitting in this booth and you're waiting and you're stressed and you haven't slept all day and you kind of have food. I brought some crackers, but I couldn't eat. And then they say, okay, we'll suck inside or you're up next. All of a sudden, right? And then what they do is they hook up your mic and there's a line in the ground, a very distinct line, that in your little contract that you sign your life away, they say, once you cross it, everything you say and do will be used against you in a court of TV, basically, right? And you go, and the thing that's so interesting is like you're sitting there and you can see the group ahead of you. So you're sitting behind stage, you have cameras on you, and you can see but cannot hear the people ahead of you. And I don't think there's no camera in here, but all we saw was like the I'm out, I'm out, I'm out on TV. And like, again, your heart is up. A million miles an hour and they go okay Will Suckman you're up and you're like uh, okay so they bring you out and you do your 90 second thing which you can see on the on the show that's like that's what we rehearsed we did it but then is the TV magic so the TV magic which is so interesting is that like it's an hour you're in there for an hour and um, there's several things that happen first off all lovely people like they're all super super nice and we don't get to meet them beforehand they kind of off camera there's some very like more casual things that you don't catch but some it's classic right like they're you see them as these actor figures or whatever on tv but when you see behind it, they're lovely super kind people um but what's also funny is that you're clearly they're kind of trying to rattle you right they're trying to rattle your cage they're trying to get a reaction out of you and so with the rob herjavik side of things where he threatens to sue us right he's like oh and the reason why is because he has this awesome cybersecurity company called sideris 
and there's the S comp cider, right? Or, uh oh, patent infringement, trademark infringement, all these kind of things. But the th cool thing about TV Magic is that while we were there, he was actually one of the most interested guys because of the space that we're in, in the space of like cyber ownership and data security and stuff like that. Um, and so they kind of framed him in, and I feel bad the editing of like being the bad guy, but he was one of the nicest guys in real life. Like he was like, that's such a cool go to market strategy. You guys are super well spoken. Um, and it was, I think the reason why I believe he was out again, and I don't quote me on this is it just was too early. We're an early stage pre-seed company and it just wasn't a right fit for him. Um, but it's just like another experience. Cause I think I told you this, um, a little before we started, it's like, here you and I are all talking, right? Like we're kind of doing our thing. Um, and when you're pitching, you typically are used to pitching a venture capitalist and they kind of go, um, how much money are you making? And you tell them and you're like, okay, well, where did you found this? When they kind of tell them, they kind of jot down notes. But because of TV magic, they're like acting. So you'll be like, oh, like we've, we're a year and a half old. And they'll go, oh, only a year and a half old or whatever. And they're like super expressive and like being actor, actor style things. But then they go back to being like normal, because they're not trying to get the sound bite, they go back to being normal venture capitalist angel investors. And you're just sitting there like, what? what? Like, what just happened? Um, so it was, again, this whole experience. Uh, and the last thing that I always say about being on TV too is like, while you're pitching, um, and again, there's no cameras in the room, but you'll be talking to one of them. And then as you're talking, this guy with this two by five foot camera will just pass right in front of you. And as, he's, as you're trying to talk to them, then he said, oh, just speak through the camera. And you're trying to talk to like Michelle Romanow or Arlene Dickinson or something, but there's this camera guy in your way as you're trying to talk to them. And you're like, okay, can you get out? Of, I'm trying to make money here, <laughs> get out of the way. So, um, and yeah, and it was an awesome experience. I'm sure as you saw, like got a handshake on the, on the den and it's been going, going well since. So, so when you got the offer, yeah. Um, I mean, when we watched it on TV, they just made the offer and then it was like <laughs> you and Sukman had to yeah. look at each other yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and decide whether or not yeah. you were going to take it. Yeah, yeah. It couldn't have possibly been that way during the show. Yeah. Did, did they not give you a few minutes to discuss no. whether you're going to sell part of the company? So this is the thing, right? So again, it's it's like TV magic in a, in a way, but you're, the whole thing is like you have to be crisp. And we're lucky we were super well practiced. But before the night has started or the thing started, the night before I made a heat map on what the range of acceptable criteria we would take is. And so it's funny, if you rewatch the show, I'm doing this like glitchy thing with my eyes and that's how I do math in my head. Um, and it's me remembering the heat map on what we would accept. And the funny thing that they edited out is that Sukman looks at me to see if it, whatever she offered falls in the range or the number we wanted. And it was bang on. Like it was like, perfect, this is great, works for her, works for us, it's a really great deal. But everything is one cut, one cut live. You are allowed to walk away, but the deal, again, it's kind of a game show kind of thing. You have to be quick. So yeah, it was, it was like she offered it and then I did my numbers thing and got the handshake. So now that that's happened, when was that show? Tell, remind me. It was a while ago now, May 24th was when they filmed it. And this then it went year. Live, yeah. And then it went okay. live in October. So in, I guess over the last six months and looking forward to the next 12 months, yep. um, what are the big challenges here with Cider? What are your key, I guess, you must have a user count that yep. you're trying to go for, yep. a rev gen yep. uh, that you're trying to go for. What, what do you guys have as goals? How many people are you guys working with right now? Mm -hmm. How do you set your goals uh, for your company for the next 12 months? And um, 
and what are the big challenges that are kind of in your standing in your way how helpful is this new dragon on the team yeah 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 so yeah so we got our handshake from Arlene and like so the whole aspect of this year was uh product finalization sales ramp up and financial like security so raising funds from venture capital angels and all that kind of thing was this year's goal. So we closed the round this year. We successfully raised our, our pre-seed round and made we're happy to be able to fund all our employees and, and grow it that way and grow our sales. The whole thing for next year is sales. So we've landed currently three, can I say this? Again, so like three clients right now. So we're, we're working with them right now. We're generating revenue starting January of 2024, which is incredibly exciting. Um, from that aspect, our goal is to continue to grow our sales with other institutions that we're working with. They're mostly banks and credit unions, uh, as well as a market research firm. And that whole aspect will be okay. Status quo, that bring that to steady state, ensure that our reoccurring revenue is continuous. And from that point, then go back to market, show that we proved it out with these. Other goal is five clients. We're at four right now. Um, the goal is to go, that, back, go back there, try to gain more clients while so fill up the pipeline and then go back for investment to hire a bigger sales team. Um, I'm one of the engineers. We need more engineers because I, I need to sleep eventually. Um, and then just continue to grow this company to a point where it's not just kind of sustaining it, but really like bolstering that margin more and more, uh, which is the goal for 2024. Yeah. It's going to be awesome. I'm wow. so pumped. Um, that, that sounds like a really exciting um, 12 months ahead. Um, I, I've had a little bit of experience with uh, startups as well. We started a, uh, a real estate, uh, uh, kind of a prop- property technology firm yeah, you were telling me it was uh, awesome. a few years ago. And I think one of the things that uh, has surprised me has been the, I guess, how difficult it is to maintain that high level of uh, adrenaline and enthusiasm mm. for your startup as you go, you know, through the years. So I remember the first 12, 18 months being really, really, um, ex- excited, enthusiastic, um, getting a real sense of a high almost off of, um, overcoming barriers and, and moving things forward. Um, how do you, how do you see yourself maintaining that energy, uh, going into year, what is it? Year two, year yeah, three, yeah. year five. Yeah. Two, yeah, two and two and a half, I guess. I think I'll throw it back at you. It's, you know, it's like a, it's like a, I don't want, like, it's like a drug, right? Like you're, you, you're so passionate about this project that one of the lines I think you and I talked about was like, it's, I, entrepreneurs are typically the only people I know that will work 90 or hundred hours to not work 40, right? It's like anything to continue working on this project that you believe in. And again, I'd love like kind of what you th- speaking with your real estate firm. It's like, you believe that this is what you want to see in market. Like we truly believe that the world will move forward to a point where individuals will be compensated or at least have some form of control of what's going on in the, the, on the web right now. Um, and that passion then leads to a, a work that you're lucky enough to hopefully be paid really well for. Right. Um, so the energy comes from just the, just the, the vision, like the, the product itself and, and where it can go and then where it takes you. Right. Like, again, going back to you, it's just like you go to all these awesome, I was in San Francisco, like, 14 hours ago. Uh, I was in Austin this year. I was in Halifax. I was like all these places that you go to try to make this thing become a reality. They never plan really out fully. And then you just go to these awesome places, meet these amazing people. Like I get to come back here and talk about it. I get to meet you, um, meet these amazing founders that I've known. And, and it's that, that energy that I just will keep me going. 
that and maybe some coffees or two, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah a lot of coffee. I'm sure. Yeah. Um, I wanted to bring it back to your time at Crescent and, um, I know that our audience here is a range of people, mm-hmm. uh, but Crescent students, uh, first and foremost. Um, I think that looking back at my days at Crescent, um, I can remember, uh, some really, uh, important moments that, uh, helped me develop, uh, my character, uh, in addition to learning a lot and, and mm-hmm. learning t- how to, you know, on the cross country team, take care uh, of my body and, and mm-hmm. work out. And my, my passion for that is, has always been there, but really even developing the character, um, there was one occasion where we had a track meet at the school and we were setting up the hurdles and set up the hurdles. I don't, I didn't do hurdles. I know you did track too. I <laughs> want to talk about that in a moment. Um, but I was setting up the hurdles and then I was taking the hurdles down mm-hmm. and, um, I was, I mean, this is kind of an embarrassing story, but I was taking down the hurdles and I, I was ready to go. I kind of wanted to go. Uh, it was like four o'clock and, and it was summer late mm-hmm. May. And, um, and I was the, the coach, Paul Craig was there and, uh, I was taking out, he, you know, he was saying, okay, so take down the rest of the hurdles. And mm-hmm. I said, um, I don't want to take down the hurdles anymore. Kind of sound like my four-year-old daughter now that I think about it. <laughs> and he, you know, he, I turned back and said to him, well, why do I need to take down the hurdles? Mm-hmm. And he's, and, and, and he said, he said to me, well, just think of all of what this track program and the school has done for you. Mm. And at that moment, it really hit me like a ton of bricks Mm -hmm. that not only was I just proud to be on the track team, but that that program going back to even the cross country days um, reshaped my identity and turned me into whoever I am today. And, and so the, those moments of thinking back and understanding that I owed something to the school and I owed something to him, um, was, and, and understanding the gratitude that I had for the school. It was, it it was, uh, something really deeply ingrained in me and it's why I've tried to stay involved in school ever since. Um, tell us a little bit about your experiences of, um, you know, deepening your character, mm. uh, developing, developing your relationships, uh, any lessons that, you know, come to mind when you think of your days here mm-hmm. at the school? Uh, yeah, I think one of the, while you were talking, I was kind of thinking first off, Mr. Craig, amazing man, incredible, like, uh, incredible man. I have yeah. nothing, but could got a whole hour long rant about how great he is. So, um, I think one of the things that really stuck with me, it wasn't a single instance. It was a line that I don't know if this is, I can't remember if it was just the overarching thing of the school or this was from Mr. Mac or something like that, but it was that character is something you do when you're not being watched. Right. That is something that I've always remembered. And it's something that kind of carried me. And it's kind of funny because you talk about the buzzword character. And sometimes when you're 14 or 15, you kind of roll your eyes or whatever. But it is one of those things where it's like, who are you when you aren't on Instagram or aren't showing it off or whatever? And it becomes one of those things where you want to be at the end of the day, good or helpful or there for someone when they need you. And I think back to it's like whether it's something like this where you're going to try to give back to a student or whatever or um, going out when you have that extra little bit of time, spending time with your loved ones, prioritizing family and friends over 
over whatever you can, like with work. Like for me, I have this ethos where it's like, I'll work my arse off if I have to, but it's like right after this, I have this call that I have to go to and then I'm going to spend time with my family because I'm close and I had like, that's very important. Um, so it's what you do when you're not being watched is something that's kind of carried me, right? So I don't, I can't think of a specific moment at the school, but it is something where it's like, I, I don't like to brag on things that I do that try to help people and anything like that. Um, but I always will help people, right? Like I, I think that's what people are put here to do. We might have different definitions of what that is, right? Like teachers of this school will give back and they're amazing. And sometimes they might not see the rewards of that every day but I make sure that when I come back I see Mr. Stevens Mr. Bertram any of the teachers I can think of and they're there I will go and say thank you because they're amazing Um, mentors of mine they're amazing Uh, again if I'm within proximity of family always spend time with family friends if they need me I'll move their couch right that is the important thing I think when it comes to the big thing you take away when developing character is doing things that are right at the end of the day and I guess I brought that, learned that from here. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I guess as a class of 99, I would say to you as a class of 2013 and to all of the alumni that have recently graduated, mm-hmm. more recently graduated than I, there is a, there's a, there's a span of years where you can, as an alumni, come back to the school, go into the staff room and find someone who taught you. Mm-hmm. But there is also, unfortunately, a day mm-hmm. in your life where you can't do that anymore. And I believe I have passed that day where with the retirement of um, Greg Mikulski, I think uh, I know David Grant is still here at the school, but more or less all of the teachers here, I, a few of them were classmates with me, <laughs> That's uh, awesome. you know, Ryan Bell and, um, and Charlie Mills, great friends of mine, love to see them. Mm-hmm. I just saw Ryan Bell outside and gave him a big, yeah. big hug. I love him. Um, but I think that if you're an alumni and you're within the first 15 years of having graduated, you really ought to take advantage and come mm-hmm. into the school uh, announced or unannounced mm-hmm. and just go and uh, crash the door and say, hey, I, I just want to give, you know, uh, Mr. Stevens or whomever it is a big hug because yeah. you'll eventually reach that point in your life where you, you, you might not be able to do that anymore. I mean, mm-hmm. you could do it at a pub night and, and that's what yeah. those events are for. But um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think when I graduated, um, I missed all of the teachers so much mm-hmm. um, and it's tough not to, it's tough to come back and know that that um, most of them are if, and few of them are still here mm-hmm. um, it's just a reality of getting older yeah. you know um, so I had two lighter questions for you okay. as I think we're rounding off um, the podcast the first one is what was the pita, peanut butter company that's uh, that your partner oh, pitched um, to you? Because um, I love peanut butter and I'd like to know what it was. Or something else, Mighty Dough or something horrible like that. It was just nah, the whole metrics are wrong. I dissected it apart. It was just not. But it's funny too because he was a data guy and like a marketing guy. And I'm like, okay, you want to market peanut? But that's like it's not your niche. Like you don't right. you're okay. like super limiting product. So another thing we had in common, touched on it before, was we're both on the track team. Yeah. Um, 
I did what nobody really wants to do when they're um, when they're not very athletic, which is the longer distance running. Um, how did you end up with the javelin in yeah. your hand? Because I understand that you excelled at it, yeah. to say the least. Uh, you were on the national team for yeah. javelin throwing. Yeah, yeah. How how did you get to be in javelin? This is. It's, it's kind of funny a story. Well, first off, kudos to you for getting into long distance running. I I tried it this year. Anyone that does long distance running, you're an absolute legend slash crazy person. Like it's it's so painful, but <laughs> good for you, man. Um, and it was kind of that that got me into it. I was a sprinter, and I was big boy sprinter, and I was too lazy, quote unquote, my 14 year old self to do the runs that day. And so Mr. Bertram was like, "All right, well." go throw that thing and it was the spear or whatever and I go and I chucked it and he kind of looked at me and he goes that's got legs and he just put me in like back in the middle school or high school track they just put you in everything right hoping you something sticks and I always did track and I remember going to the first meet and it was again one of those natural versus hard work things where it was like I was naturally good at it but only to a point where yes I was good enough to maybe um, qualify or be like popping it for a while, but it was then, like, if you asked anyone that was here, it was kind of like a, a, a meme at this point where any teacher that's still here asked them, I'd be out on that field, like, every day. Like, I was out there, like, five, six days a week, throwing from three to five o'clock, which in retrospect is super bad for your body. I have a whole story on that, too. Um, but I was out there every day, like, stealing space from the rugby team, getting in, like, shouting matches with coaches that I, I, I love you, Bob, but I was getting like in the way of, uh, of Bob and the, the rugby team because they keep kicking balls into my little patch of dirt that I had. Um, and I was just practicing all the time. And it went from, I remember in grade nine, I came like 12th or something like that at offset. I was lucky enough to qualify. And I looked at Mr. Bertram and I saw the guys on the podium and Mr. Bertram will quote me on this. And I looked at them and I said, I'm going to be on that podium by grade 12. I'm going to be, I'm going to be on that. And so there was the four or five days a week. And then I hit it in grade 12, was on the top in the city, and I, in the city I threw one of the best throws of my life, like last throw, five, six meter PB, which is like a full second if you're running the 100 faster. And then that gave me legs to get a scholarship to Western. I did the Western track, um, stuck to that, and I just kept doing it, and I loved it because it was just like this outlet for me, because I would kill myself in academics, as I go back to the beginning of this, where it was not easy. And then my outlet of that more natural kind of thing to me was sports and playing catch with myself in a field basically where I'd throw something go get it and throw it again and do that to ease my mind um for a bit and it was super fun like unfortunately I ended up blowing out my right shoulder and elbow and knee uh it was like one of the best throws of my life too it was like I threw it like 76 or something meters and my coach was like awesome yay and then I threw the next throw and it was like 40 which is like you ran a nine second hundred and then you ran like a 14 second hundred and it was like one of those like Ugh. so I was like 24 or something when that happened uh which really sucked uh because you're at like the peak and then it was just, again, a rehab, trying to get back together. And I, I still do it, um, but it's like getting Tommy John surgery as a baseball thrower. So yeah. it's like, uh, well, time to focus on coding, I guess. So. But you, you're, you're Greek. So <laughs> your family must have really Oh, it was the memes. There were so many memes. <laughs> like, all of this. Yeah. Um, and probably a lot of uh, conjecture that maybe one of your great, 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 uh, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, 
grandfathers was out there in Athens uh, throwing the javelin. Um, well, I mean, uh, Will, it's been a really uh, an amazing conversation. You know, we've touched on your success, your, your challenges, your successes as a student, um, taking that uh, amazing accomplishment, the valedictorian at Western, into then uh, Silicon Valley and Cider. Uh, onto the TV uh, stage at, with the Dragons and now going into the next 12 months. Seems to me Cider's got a really bright future um, with you know f- co-founders like you at the helm. You're young, you're driven, you're clear, you're articulate. Um, I, I wish you guys all, all the best. Um, and I, I encourage like any of the students that are uh, going through the program right now that want to know more about you to reach out um, and really just to reach out to all the alumni. I think mm-hmm. alumni in general, like both of us, are more than happy, if not excited, uh, to meet with uh, alum- other younger alumni or students uh, at the school. Uh, my my two cousins are, are, are just finished uh, just finished here. That's awesome. And so I think that I think that uh, as alumni, um, we're always looking for opportunities to like connect and give back to the school. Uh, and so we we ought to we ought to encourage them uh, as we can to to reach out more often and not be shy. This has been Coyote Conversations, a Crescent alumni podcast produced by students for the Crescent community. This episode was recorded and edited at Crescent School by Cole Joliet and Kieran Lee, class of 24, and made possible by Carson McGregor, Communications and Technology Faculty, and the Crescent Alumni Executive. My name is Hassam Gadaki. Thank you for joining us and see you next time on Coyote Conversations.